4, verse 14 to 13. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found a piece where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back and to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They said. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me to come in your hometown that we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time Elisha was a prophet yet no one of the yet not one of them was cleansed only naman the syrian all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this they got up drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way thank you skyra and thank you so much to all who have spoken over the last few weeks on our series of racism and injustice. Um, it's the end of the series, but obviously it's not the end of us talking about that at St Peter's. I just want to invite um, anyone who is part of St Peter's family, who's black or minority ethnic, to an evening on July the 28th, 7.30pm. We'll do it socially distanced at church. And Hanel and I would love to host that evening, and we'd love to talk to you more about steps going forward for St Peter's. So please do come to that if you can. Won't be the last one. We'll do it again after the August break um, in September too. Thanks, Lucy, for leading worship. Um, thank you also to those who gave prophetic words. I believe God's speaking to us this morning and I believe this talk is for people who feel exhausted. I believe this talk is for people who feel like they've come to the end of themselves. I feel that this talk is for people who feel particularly weak at the moment. This passage that Skyra just read 
is one of the most exciting passages in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, because it's the point at which Jesus opens up the Bible and says, this is who I am and this is what I've come to do. And then the rest of the story of Jesus is essentially him living out this very passage that he's just talked about. And I have read this passage so many times and I've spoken on this passage so many times. And I admit, I always finish on verse 21. I get very excited about the bit where he quotes Isaiah. I get very excited excited when Jesus talks about it all being fulfilled in him. And then I rush off and I say, yes, it's about good news to the poor. It's about proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, setting the oppressed feet. I'm in on that. I want that. I want to see that happen all around me. And I run off and I try and make it happen. And so often I forget to read the rest of the passage. And this week, as I was preparing for this talk, I read the rest of the passage and I realized that there is something fundamentally wrong with my normal response to this part of Luke's gospel. Essentially, there's five parts to this passage, this moment in the life of Jesus. The first is where Jesus stands up and he reads a little bit of the Bible. He reads a bit of scripture. It's not unlike what we would do here at St. Peter's. We have a little reading and then there's a talk. So Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah 61. And this passage is all about the people of Israel being told that the long-awaited Messiah, the Saviour, is on his way. That there will come a time where someone will come who will save them from oppression, who will bring heaven and earth back together again, will restore them to to the, to the people who they were created to be, to do what they were created to, to do. And the, the whole of the kind of biblical narrative in general is essentially saying this is the point at which heaven and earth are going to come back together again and everything is going to be made right by God again. So this would have been a much quoted passage and people when they heard this passage would be getting excited because they know despite what they're experiencing in the present, there will come a time where they'll be freed. There will come a time where a saviour will come and set them free and to release the oppressed. And so they'd be getting excited. But then Jesus delivers in the second part of this passage the most unbelievable sermon. It's unbelievable because it's one line and very short. But it's also unbelievable because of what he says. He essentially stands up and he says, that time, that person that you've been waiting for all this time is here right now. And I am him. I am the Messiah. I am the saviour you've been waiting for. At which point the crowd are amazed They all speak well of him. They start talking to each other. This is it. It's happening. The person that we've been waiting for all this time has come. They're a little bit confused. Some of them say, isn't this Joseph's son? This doesn't make sense. Like, how is it this person? But he's claiming to be. So let's get on board and let's go and see it happen. And they're excited. Jesus hears their response and he gives the second part to his talk. Now, this is the bit I always miss out. He gives his second part from verses 23 onwards to 27. And then look at the response of the people in the temple after that. It goes from being excited. It goes from speaking well of Jesus. It goes from being amazed at what he just said to this in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove Jesus out of town. They took him to a brow of a hill and they were intending to throw him off the cliff so that he died. But he walked straight through them because it's not his time yet. And he goes on his way. When we read this passage, the question we should be asking ourselves is what on earth did Jesus say to switch that response so radically? To go from saying, thank you, finally, it's happening, it's happening now, they're amazed, they're pleased, they're speaking well of Jesus, to we need to kill this guy, drive him to a cliff and throw him over the cliff so that he dies. 
What caused that huge shift in response? Well, obviously, there's something that Jesus said in the second part of his talk. And essentially, in that second part, what he's doing there is he's defining who this good news is for. Where he says that he's come to proclaim good news for the poor, he's defining who the poor are. So let me just read that quickly now. He says this, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel. There were many widows a part of the people of God in Elijah's time. He's one of the prophets um, who spoke for God. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, they were going through a terrible famine and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet, he says, Elijah wasn't sent to any of those in Israel. Instead, he was sent to the widow in Zarephath. We'll come back to that in the region of Sidon. Then he says, and there were many in Israel with leprosy who were dying in the time of Elisha, who's the prophet that followed on from Elijah, yet none of them were cleansed. He didn't cleanse any of the people in the kind of nation of Israel. Instead, only Naaman the Syrian was healed. What is Jesus saying there? Well, Jesus essentially is defining who gets to benefit from him being the saviour. And he chooses two people as the examples of the poor. So who are these two people? Well, the first is the widow, Zarephath. And this story is in 1 Kings, and it's about the prophet Elijah. And it's during the time, as Jesus says there, of a drought, a severe famine had struck the land, and the people of Israel were desperate for, to be saved. And, and Elijah, the prophet, essentially goes to an outsider, the widow of Zarephath, a, a Gentile, an idol worshipper, a heretic. She was poor. She was female. She was on the outside of every religious and moral standard. She was not believing the right things. She wasn't living the right way. She's an outcast. She was completely outside of the people of God who people thought that should be in. She was morally unclean. And yet, God saves her through the prophet Elijah. Who's Naaman the Syrian? Well, in 2 Kings, we read about this story, and it's Elisha this time. Now, this is where Jesus undermines the idea that the gospel is only for the literal poor, because it's not the literal poor that Elisha goes to here. This is a prominent general in the Syrian army. He's got wealth. He's got status. He's strong in the eyes of other people. But here's the point. He's a murderer. He's an enemy. He's a killer. He's immoral. He's an idol worshipper. He's got leprosy, and he knows that he has no other option, and yet God saves him through Elisha. So the question we have to ask ourselves of these two people that Jesus uses as examples of the poor that he has come to save is what do they have in common? Why do these two people make the people in the temple so furious? Well, the people in the temple would have been listening to Jesus and he's giving these examples and they would have said, this doesn't make sense. Those guys are the bad guys. Those guys are the outsiders. They're the immoral. They're the oppressors. They're the people that we're supposed to be saved from. Instead, the temple crowd thought they were the good guys. They come to temple every week. They follow the law. They read the scripture. They tick all the right boxes. They hear Isaiah 61. They say, finally, someone is recognizing that we need liberation. We are owed liberation. We're entitled to justice. Thank you. Someone is here to do it. And Jesus says, no, I haven't come for you guys. I've come for the other guys. I'm good news for people like the widow, the outsider, the outcast. I'm good news for the general who's come to the end of his life and is desperate because he can't save himself anymore. So what do Naaman and the widow have in common? None of them, both of them, they didn't deserve what they got, but they were desperate. Neither of them were bringing anything 
to the table. They were both spiritually bankrupt. They'd come to the end of themselves and they knew they needed saving. Here's the point of what Jesus is saying in this passage. He hasn't come to save us from somebody else. He's come to save us from ourselves. Jesus doesn't come to liberate us from external circumstances that are penning us in. Jesus has come to liberate ourselves from ourselves. He's good news for the broken. He's good news for the hurting. He's good news for those of us who have come to the end of ourselves who know that they need saving. This makes so much sense when you look back at the Isaiah passage because it ends by talking about Jesus bringing the year of the Lord's favour. So what's the year of the Lord's favour? Well, the year of the Lord's favour was essentially the year of Jubilee. And it's where the nation of Israel would celebrate every 50 years by essentially dividing everything in the land of Israel equally again amongst the people in Israel. And so landowners who had quite rightly um, and justifiably acquired lots of land had the land taken from them and it was divided equally again amongst the people. People who were prisoners were set free, even if they committed a crime on the 49th year and hadn't served their sentence. On the 50th year, in an act of grace and mercy, they were set free. People who had been enslaved were set free. Everything was put right again in the nation of Israel. This wasn't justice. This wasn't fair. This was unmerited, undeserved, absolutely scandalous grace. And it's a taste of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus points to the year of Jubilee and says, that is a mere shadow of what I'm about to do for others. Think about it. Jesus talks about the prodigal son, doesn't he? So um, famous story that Jesus tells. There's two sons, there's a father. And the younger son comes to the father and says, can I have my share of the inheritance now before you die because I want to enjoy it? And so the father gives the younger son the share of the inheritance. He runs off and he squanders it in stupid, outrageous living. He spends all of the money and there's a point where the younger son is literally in a pigsty and he's contemplating eating the pig's food because he's run out of money. And he comes to his senses and he says, what have I done? I need to go back to my father and I need to repent of what I've done. I need to ask for his forgiveness and I need to ask him so that I can just be a slave in his household. And he comes back to the father and then there's this beautiful point in the story where the father sees him coming from far off and doesn't turn his back and go back into the house. Instead, he picks up his um, robe and he runs towards the younger son and he embraces him even before the younger son had a chance to repent and ask for forgiveness. That is grace. It's not fairness. We know it's not fairness because look at the reaction of the older son. The father just throws this huge party in honour of the younger son who was once lost but now is found and the older son says, Dad, I've done everything right. I've performed all of my duties. I have ticked all the right boxes. This guy has absolutely squandered everything. He's morally bankrupt. He's an outcast. He's unclean in every way and yet you welcome him back in and he has the same rights as me and that is the point both sons didn't need saving from anything out there they needed saving from themselves it's a bit like this imagine um maybe not too hard to imagine now lockdown finishes and the government says we're all back in we can all just socialize in any normal way we would normally socialize and you think what what i really need right now having been locked in my house 
for all this time is a huge party, absolutely huge celebration. You go out and you feel free, you feel liberated from the confines of your house. Finally, you're set free. Everything's going to be fine again. It feels like everything's all right. And you go and you have a party and you drink a little bit too much and you start dancing in the way that only drunk people dance when they think they really can dance, but they can't dance. And you're having a wild time and you come out at the end of the night and you go on your phone and you find the Uber app, you get in the back of an Uber and on the way home in the Uber, you suddenly start to feel a little bit sick. The motion of the car is going back and forth and you're like, I don't feel quite right right now. Finally, you get to your house and you're standing in front of your front door. You fumble through your bag. You finally find your keys. You manage to get the key into the lock of the door and the door swings open and standing in the doorway is Jesus. Beard, robes, sandals, the whole lot. And just in the shock of it, you projectile vomit all over him. Stripping down his beard, down his cloak. What do you think Jesus does in that moment? Here's what I think Jesus does. I think he picks you up and I think he takes you into the bathroom. I think he puts you under a shower and he cleans you. I think he clothes you in fresh, clean clothes. I think he puts you to bed. I think you sleep the night and you wake up in the morning and there's a smell of a full English breakfast because Jesus is cooking a fry up in the kitchen and you walk into the kitchen and you sit down and it's the kind of fry up where there's chips and hash browns on the same plate and you sit down, you're enjoying your breakfast and Jesus sits opposite you and he looks you in the eye and he says this, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Jesus isn't about saving us from other people. He's about saving us from ourselves. He's in the business of inner transformation, of transforming our hearts and our minds. So here's the question for us this morning. Have you had that moment where you feel like you've hit rock bottom? Have you had that moment where you've surrendered everything to Jesus? Because this is what becoming a Christian looks like. It, like, it, me, it looks like coming in front of Jesus and saying, I need to be free from myself before I'm free from anything else. I need liberating from myself. I need saving from myself. It's an act of total surrender. It's saying to Jesus, you owe me nothing. I am entitled to nothing, but I owe you everything. Because this is what Jesus did on the cross. Having done absolutely nothing wrong, he lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved as a part of the sinful life and the context in which we live. And on the cross, he's there nailed to the cross and he takes upon himself all the consequences of our lives turned in on themselves. All the consequences of the injustice and the hurt and the pain that that causes. All of the consequences of the broken relationships that we have with other people as a result. All of the consequences of the broken relationship we have with God as a result. He takes it upon himself and he says, it is finished. You can't save yourself. And he dies the death we should have died. This message is offensive to the proud. It's offensive to those of us who feel like they've got it all together. It's offensive to people who are trying really hard to make their lives mean something. It's offensive to people who think that they are able to make their lives worth something. But it's a life-changing relief to the weak. It's a life-changing relief to the exhausted. It's for the poor. It's for the outcast. It's for the broken. It's for people who have long stopped pretending that they have it all together and instead their sin is so on display everybody else can see it. They come to Jesus in total surrender and he rescues them from themselves.
Jesus is in the business of inner transformation. And in a moment, I'm going to help us all do that. But what does it look like when we do that? Uh, I remember someone once saying to me, I can't remember who it was, hurting people hurt people, but transform people transform people. Hurting people hurt people, transform people transform people. What's he getting out there? I think what he's saying there is unless you come to Jesus and allow him to fix your brokenness first, if you go out and try and fix the brokenness out there, if you go out and try and do everything else there, all you're going to do is perpetuate the problem that you had before because the problem isn't out there. The problem is in our hearts. Therefore, if we're transformed in our hearts, if we come to Jesus in total surrender, as he fills us with his presence, with his Holy Spirit, as he forgives us and gives us his grace, we're recreated into his image and we're filled with the power and the presence of Jesus and only then can we start to see proper change happen. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't tackle injustice in our own strength. We can't liberate people from impression in our own strength. It has to be done in the power and the presence of Jesus, but it starts with us going to him and being filled with his grace first. Make Jesus solution, the solution, and then it's exciting. Things are going to happen. We're going to see the kingdom come. We're going to see heaven and earth come together. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But before we end, have you had that moment where you've surrendered to Jesus? Have you had that moment where you've come before him and you said, oh, I, I can't do this anymore? I can't do this in my own strength. I'm weak, I'm broken, I'm hurting. I'm desperate and I need you. I need saving and I need you. I think this isn't necessarily one thing that we do once and then never do again. Sometimes we go off course, don't we? And we start believing in ourselves more than we believe in Jesus and we get ourselves in a fix and we have to constantly keep coming back to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I surrender everything to you. I surrender all to you again and again and again. And Jesus forgives us again and again and again. And he shows his grace to us again and again and again. So for some of you, you're going to do this for the first time now. And you're going to receive the presence of Jesus and you're going to realize how much he loves you. He doesn't care about your performance. He doesn't care about what you can do for him. He wants to give you his life and forgiveness and grace and purpose and power. For some of us, we know that and we've done that in the past, but he's going to do it to us again because we wandered off course. Because if there's one thing that's for sure about lockdown and everything that's been going on is we come face to face with ourselves when these things happen. And we think if we can just be liberated from the lockdown, from everything else, the oppression going on that there, we're going to feel fine again. No, when we come face to face with ourselves we're face to face with our own issues and our sin and our lives that are turned in on ourselves and Jesus needs to heal that and transform that before we see the transformation outside so let's do that right now shut your eyes